My name is Phil Corbett from the podcast Van Sounds, and this is a podcast for Travel Nevada. It's the final part of a three-part series, and we're traveling the Cowboy Corridor, a road trip across the state roughly following Interstate 80. So buckle in, and let's take a ride. Leaving Winnemucca, we head west on I-80. Nevada is defined by hundreds of north-south mountain ranges. So driving west across the state, you're running against the grain. You'll climb a pass and then drop into a valley, then climb a pass and repeat until you get to the final range, the Sierra Nevada. Just one valley over from Winnemucca is Buena Vista Valley. We turn south onto State Route 400 and drop into it, skirting the base of Thunder Mountain and Star Peak. We turn up into the Humboldt Range on a dirt road and suddenly we're in a narrow green canyon. This is Unionville. Unionville is a very unique place. It's hidden in this canyon on a creek, and many of the buildings are from the 1800s. Some, like a cabin Mark Twain briefly lived in, show their age, slowly bending toward the ground which will eventually reclaim them. But many others have been preserved and rebuilt. That is largely thanks to this guy. Well, I'm, I'm David Jones, and I live here in uh, Unionville at the Old Pioneer Garden Bed and Breakfast. David runs the Old Pioneer Garden Bed and Breakfast, and it's one of the first properties you get to in the canyon. It's a beautiful collection of trees and gardens, ruins from Unionville's mining days, and masterfully restored old homes. When we pull up, David is out working in the field and heads over to give us a tour. See, we, we had already fixed up uh, a couple of houses here, and we got to that one. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just uh, just one of those things. You want to walk through the field or up the road? Whichever you prefer. Let's go okay. this way. Cool. David ended up here in the 1970s with his family and they began reclaiming these historic buildings. When you took over ownership, how old was the house at that time? Well, let's see. It was, it was built in, uh, we figure anything with Dolby in it was 1860s to early 70s, perhaps, at... At least. And so by the time uh, your family had taken over, it had been 100 years old. <coughs> That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was, it was just his private residence, or what was, was he running a business out of this house as well? Uh, Mr. Hadley uh, lived here with his two daughters and wife, and they, they ran the gardens, old Pioneer Gardens, which is just to the east of the house here, and it, uh, they grew all the vegetables for the, for the miners. Yeah, and they were very industrious people. 
In a place like Unionville, the original residents and their craftsmanship is hard to forget, hard to overlook. Uh, Mr. Hadley was qu- quite, quite a gifted man with the with the forge and anvil. I mean, you know, he was he was really good at his trade. He he worked at it his whole life, and so uh, I've found a couple of things, no doubt made by him, tools out in the fields out here. Um, and when you look at them, I mean, I would love to be able to do forge work like that. It's so beautiful, you know, because they didn't just build a tool. They made it look good. Back then, it was, it was normal. It was expected. It, it, you know, it was part of his... Um, how he felt about his work, you know, uh, uh, he, he put his own individuality into the work, you know, and it, I mean, when you look at it, it's, you know, these little dimples and, you know, uh, very difficult to do. Little uh, work on an anvil, it's very hard to do, you know, but he, he was good at it. David walks us around what he calls the Hadley House. It has a huge living room with a piano, couches, and a big window overlooking the creek. He points up a few stairs through a doorway. These two rooms here, we kept um, exactly as they were, as much as possible, uh, from the 1860s. And so this is where Mrs. Hadley would serve... Uh, meals to the miners, to the local miners, in, in this room. And um, it looks rather small, but they, you know, she had um, maybe five tables in there. there there's uh, uh, some really elderly people that we met when we first came out here to Unionville that told us a couple of stories about Mark Twain taking his meals here. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. And there's one little anecdote about how a little girl was sent to bed early because she had the temerity to to tell Mark Twain not to use the uh, sugar spoon to stir his coffee. Do you do you see this, you know, as a, an exercise in preserving tradition or do you see it as adding on to tradition? Well, you know, Definitely preserving. Uh, I, I, uh, that's really foremost in my mind. That's really what uh, is important to me. It's, um, it's just, yeah, something I've always felt really strongly about. Uh, the, the, the items, it's sort of like a, you know, it's, it's a responsibility that I feel to these old things. It's, you know, I know it sounds a little bit corny or something like that but that's the way I feel about it it's 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 something that you know I I have to keep in good shape you know uh, make it uh, shine a little bit Uh, you know what I mean I, I admire these guys I admire these fellows that lived here and what they did I admire their work and um I try to try to you know learn something from it as well you know it's I, because I think there are things 
to learn from them. It's hard to explain, but the old pioneer garden feels like actually stepping into another time. But not as a gimmick. This place is not a modern tourist trap with wacky old decoration. It's instead a place that has carefully observed the ways of the past, and quietly and eloquently relayed them. We spoke with David for something like two hours, but like a lot of Nevada, I think this place is better experienced than told. So my best advice is to get off I-80 and check it out. Sydney and I leave town and quietly make our way back into the valley. But our trip back in time is not quite over yet. I'm, I'm Bob Walker from Lovelock. And my family's been here probably since 1870s. We meet up with Bob Walker in Lovelock to get some history about a nearby ghost town. So did you say that your family had a connection to Seven Troughs Ghost Town? Yeah, well, yeah, they, they all mined up there, and uh, there, there's a story, and a, I know it's correct, because one of my great-uncles told me this twice. And then a guy had just died here a couple of years ago, uh, Smokey Baird, another one of the uncles told him. He told me, and it was just identical. But they used to go out here, here to um, uh, the springs up here to go out that way, and they were going, they were all just young kids, in their teens and 20s, and they were going to go sage hen hunting. And the guys that found Seven Traws came in there, that Poker Brown Springs. They came in there, and they showed them the chunks of rock with the gold and everything, and told them, don't go sage hen hunting, go over there, pointed over there and right where they were at, told them, stake your claims, and then go sage. Well, they went sage hen hunting. So about a week later, they come back into Lovelock, and they couldn't even walk down the streets. And those claims in the, anywhere in that area were selling for $100,000 a piece. And this is 1906. So that's like millions. Seven Troughs Ghost Town is about an hour outside of Lovelock. And its remoteness is part of why it's so well-preserved. There are about a dozen buildings still standing, so Sydney and I crack a beer and take a walk down Main Street. It's often hard to tell what buildings and ghost towns used to be, but these are still pretty much untouched. You can tell which ones were the houses, the bunkhouses, the bars, and much of the mining equipment, especially the big stuff, was just left there. Unlike Unionville, where the past has been meticulously preserved and lived in, Seven Troughs is much more of a raw version of what things used to be. You can see the old mattresses and kitchen counters the way they were abandoned. And look through the windows to see the same view of the valley that the miners would have had in 1906. Time wears on things unevenly. In one of the lower houses, in what was once a living room, I noticed the east wall is peeling in layers. The floral-patterned wall has torn away to show a different wallpaper beneath than a painted wall. And where some of that has crumbled, you can see the wooden bones of the house. In every detail, there are layers of history. 
one plastered over another, building one story of an old place. We get back onto I-80 and drive a couple of hours into the sunset. Next stop, Reno. Y'all ready? Let me try that again. I said, are you ready? Welcome to the Reno Rodeo. You are making history tonight. It is an absolute honor to come home to something like this. As I say, I'm Bob Tolman and proud to be in the Nevada. It's an honor to be on this. So, speaking of old stories, the Reno Rodeo is an institution. It started in 1919 and has steadily grown to be one of the most famous rodeos in the world. If you're looking for a way to interact with Western traditions, there is probably none more exciting than the rodeo. I got the opportunity to sit down with legendary rodeo announcer Bob Tallman. The Reno Rodeo was kind of like Disneyland to me when I was a kid. It was three or four days long, I don't remember. But it was, you know, it had fireworks and lights and sound and music, and it was big. Well, as people raise their children here, there's a lot of people my age, I'm 70, that their grandparents and their parents brought them here. Then they brought their kids here. So we're about, oh, six generations deep. Part of that longevity is that the Reno Rodeo is just a good show. It's wild, it's tense, and it appeals to a pretty wide range of people. Now let's go back to, the, to 1919 when they had the first one. When you think about what it did is it gathered people, uh, the promoters in those days, and that's what they were, were promoters, that put on an event that was culturally accepted by the Wild West. Uh, then into the 30s and 40s, it became culturally acceptable, plus an economic benefit to Reno. Well, as time's gone on, um, and we saw this start to change back in the 60s, that not all of our contestants were ranch-raised, agricultural-based types of people. Then you started seeing more urban types of people become cowboys. And the ladies of the Wild West in their gingham gowns and big hats, and they rode bucking horses. Then those sophistications changed, and the bucking horses got better, and the cowboys got better because it started paying, you know, a reasonable amount of money. Let's say in 1950 that a guy won $900. That'd be like 9000 in eight seconds today. Well, rodeo today on the big scheme pays 55 to $60 million in prize money. And so when we pay a million dollars out in our rodeo at the Reno Rodeo, 
Um, and a guy, 19 years old, last night, Leighton Berry, from where I live now in Weatherford, Texas, wins 2,700 for eight seconds. And on his second horse, he wins 2,900, comes back here and wins $17,000 on Saturday night. You're taking a 19-year-old kid that'll leave here with 25 grand, a beautiful pair of Reno Rodeo Spurs. But what he did is the money is not as important as for his character in what he's doing. He's fresh on my mind because his dad's texting me right now and telling me how proud he is. Even as rodeo has changed, it is rooted in old ways. There's more money now, and not every roper or bull rider grew up on a working ranch. But that is where the events came from. Tradition, tradition gets lost today because we have so many exciting things that happen in our life at the snap of a finger. We, we're a society today of involvement by choice, and occasionally tradition will slip in. Now, I say that rodeo, rodeo's tough. And that toughness is something that Bob and his colleagues at the Reno Rodeo try to relay to the audience. History, in some cases, is boring. History, in other cases, is frightening. And history, overall, is difficult to make it exciting, depending on how you present it, to whom you're presenting it to, and what do you expect them to receive and take from that presentation. So in two and a half hours every night, at the microphone at the Reno Rodeo, I try to give them a little taste of it all. We can deliver more information in two and a half hours than the normal person if they get 15% of that. Of 100% of everything I say, they hear 50% of it. If they archive 10% and leave with a smile on their face and happiness in their heart and feel good about being here, we win. They'll buy a ticket and come back and do it again. Ask Bob what he'd like to tell somebody who doesn't have a vested interest in rodeos or cowboys. I, I don't try to tell people anything. I ask them to believe a part of yesterday as we present it today with the future for it tomorrow. Tradition is an interesting thing. Back in the Livestock Event Center, it's Saturday night and the sun just set behind the snow-capped mountains. Bob stands in the middle of the arena in the bed of a pickup truck and accepts an award from the Reno Rodeo Association. I'm just a kid from Winnemucca that wanted to be a cow. That's a whole story. And with that, the truck drives through the gates and the rodeo goes on. There's a wisdom in tradition and history that's worth learning from. It's easy to drive by a place without thinking too much about the people who were there before. But there's a good chance that the people who shaped this part of the world over dozens or hundreds or thousands of years spent lifetimes learning from it. And if you look a little closer, 
and listen to their stories. It might just change the way that you see this place. This podcast was produced by me, Phil Corbett, for Travel Nevada. This episode was all about the Cowboy Corridor, which stretches across Nevada, roughly following I-80. To learn more details about this trip and other Nevada road trips, check out TravelNevada.com. The intro music in this episode is a song called Space Camp by Reno artist Buffalo Moses, and the outro was by People With Bodies. You can find me and my work at fansounds.org. Thanks for listening.